Hello, welcome to episode 12 of the Capital Insurrection Report, The New Normal. I'm your host, Scott Kuhn. This week we're going to be focusing on the efforts by Trump and his supporters to remake the Republican Party. We'll use the work of the 19th and early 20th century uh, engineer slash social scientist slash political theorist slash sociologist uh, slash economist, I even mentioned that, Vilfredo Pareto, uh, and his theory of the circulation of elites to look at how Trump and his so-called America First Republicans are seeking to remake the Republican Party root and branch. But before we do that, uh, we'll catch up on events and developments in the ongoing Capitol insurrection investigations and some of the other related developments uh, in the broader insurrectionist movement as a whole, which uh, now, just yesterday, uh, has launched uh, what apparently appeared to be a lone wolf attack uh, at the Library of Congress in the nation's capital uh, by one Floyd Ray Roseberry. We'll also catch up on some of the other events, including um, some of the uh, developments with regard to Mike Lindell's cybersecurity. Uh, I want to call it a telethon. Um, and uh, the testimony of Jeff Rosen, uh, who delivered, dropped some bombshells in front of the Senate Ju Judiciary Committee on August 7th. There's little news coming out of the House Select Committee to investigate the events of January 6th. The one announcement that they have made was, was on August 12th, when the committee announced the, the appointment of a chief investigative counsel, Timothy Heafy. Heafy has served as a U.S. attorney and also uh, led the investigation into the events at Charlottesville in August 2017. He's resigned his position at the University of Virginia, rather taken a leave of absence, to work with the House Select Committee. Now, it appears that there's a, sort of a two-track uh, process going on congressionally uh, with regard to the investigation of the events at the Capitol on January 6th. Jeff Rosen, the former acting attorney general, um, appeared uh, on a Saturday, August 7th, to deliver four hours of testimony uh, to the House Judici sorry, the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, and in this testimony, Rosen confirmed that um, he would also cooperate with the Department of Justice, OIG, Office of Inspector General, and also pledged to cooperate with the Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz. Now, in his testimony before the committee, Rosen testified that Jeffrey Clark met with Trump while he was acting head of the Department of Justice Civil Division, which is highly inappropriate. Clark apparently discussed with Trump efforts to delegitimize the 2020 election results, and Rosen also testified that Clark had asked him to request that Georgia, the Georgia legislature, the state legislature, void the Georgia election results on the basis of, quote, fraud. Now, this is an extraordinary claim, and um, it is interesting that this happened on a Saturday before the committee in the Senate, mm -hmm. rather than um, in front of the Klieg lights uh, in the select committee. 
So, uh, my guess would be that a lot of the things that are going to happen in the select committee, you know, they've only just now appointed an investigative council. So there may be work going on behind the scenes, but so far the select committee really, uh, you know, did a good job in trying to publicize the uh, tremendous uh, trauma that was inflicted on federal law enforcement that day, um, sort of in the court of public opinion. But um, this is actually far more significant uh, in terms of documenting the ties between the effort to overturn the election on January 6th and the efforts to overturn the election in, uh, leading up to that. Um, in somewhat related news, today there was a Reuters article that alleged, citing anonymous FBI sources, that there's no evidence of uh, any kind of higher-up collusion uh, with the events on, on January 6th, which is risible, right? Uh, they, you know, so far 37, maybe 40 people have been indicted for a conspiracy. It only takes two, so there's definitely conspiracy. Um, and they specifically said there, there's nothing regarding um, Roger Stone or Alex Jones. And this is anonymous former officials. Well, that's highly problematic, right? Uh, if you, this is a, very high profile case and if you have knowledge that you want to offer then you should do it publicly uh you shouldn't prejudice the investigation by speaking to the press and i don't know why former officials are you know given any credence with regard to inside knowledge if they're former officials they shouldn't have any knowledge of the investigation but uh the out it was covered by many major news outlets of course you know reuters uh, it got uh, repeated, um, but it's not really sourced, right? There's using anonymous sources, and they verified it with uh, anonymous congressional sources. So uh, to me, it looks like a trial balloon for a whitewash to indict the foot soldiers, arrest them, put them in a federal pen, uh, but not to do anything with the higher-ups. Uh, we know that there are any number of indicators of uh, collusion between people in the crowd and people who were on the stage, particularly on January 5th. There are two separate events. There was the event at the Ellipse on January 6th that was organized by um, Women for America First, the Trumpist quote, women's group that was founded by the, uh, one of the Tea Party organizers, and um, the event on January 5th, uh, which featured Ali Alexander, Alex Jones and any number of other people uh, who are linked to the Oath Keepers and other groups that are definitely involved in the conspiracy to storm the Capitol. So none of none of this Reuters article actually addresses any of that. Um, but Rosen's testimony is extremely significant because it shows that, you know, there was this ongoing effort to mount, in effect, a, a legal coup. And when that failed, uh, we saw the events of January 6th unfold. I'd like to take a moment uh, now to step back and take a sort of a high-level view of where the prosecutions are going. Uh, just in terms of overall numbers, we've had 615 people charged, uh, including everyone in the, the categories I'm going to mention below. So um, with outstanding BOLO photos, and it looks like the Be On The Lookout photos, those people are coming in. Um, and we're still learning, you know, about how long it takes between identification and uh, actual arrest and charging. 
but 615 so far. Um, it looks like the initial estimate of 800 is probably going to be conservative. Uh, 36 convictions so far, including this week, uh, Scott Fairlam. Uh, that is the uh, New Jersey gym owner, formal, former martial arts uh, MMA uh, fighter and boxer, uh, who did plead to felony obstruction and assaulting an officer. So uh, that is, you know, one of the few felony pleas that we've seen to date. And six sentences. Uh, all of them plead to misdemeanors, um, except for Paul Hodgkins, um, who got the, the obstruction charge and uh, was sentenced to eight months, um, all found guilty of this so-called parading charge, right? Parading or demonstrating on capital grounds, which, as I talked about in an earlier episode, was a charge that was specifically targeted at peaceful demonstrators in the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War protests, uh, all the way from, from the 40s uh, through to the 60s. So these laws were first... Uh, implemented in response to the original March on Washington movement, uh, which was a movement targeting uh, lynching, right? It was an anti-lynching, black-led civil rights movement, uh, and then amended um, just one day before the what had been, at the time, uh, the largest anti-Vietnam War protest in October of 1967. So, uh, again... They could be, you know, they could be pleading to uh, being in a restricted area, which would uh, be a higher level misdemeanor, um, which carries a sentence of up to a year. But these folks are pleading to the lesser charge of parading. To my mind, that is problematic because there are fewer restrictions on people who wind up pleading to uh, this level of misdemeanor than people who are charged with higher level to mis mis level misdemeanors once uh, they uh, do their time, um, if any, right? So um, that's problematic, again, because this is a charge that, you know, is specifically aimed at peaceful demonstrators, and yet um, the demonstration itself was not peaceful, and, you know, if uh, someone else breaks a window and then I enter uh, the, you know, the building, I'm still as guilty of uh, trespassing or being in a restricted area, uh, you know, that's, that's not parading. Um, so with that, you know, I do think that there should, that, that perhaps uh, there, there's reason to argue that perhaps the AUSAs should pursue some higher level pleas. All these defendants have four counts against them. Um, they're dropping three. They're going with parading. The, the least, the, the penalty, the one that carries the lowest level penalty and, um, Perhaps it would be great if public opinion got to the point where we could say enough is enough. Um, you know, have them plead to being in a restricted area, which carries a more severe sentence and more severe consequences down the line after they're released. So um, that's the misdemeanor people. And we're still not seeing a lot of plea agreements in these felony cases. Allegedly, a number of these felony pleas are in the work. Uh, earlier this week, two former Rocky Mount Virginia police officers rejected plea agreements that had been offered by the government. Uh, Thomas or T.J. Robertson and Jacob Fracker were charged jointly in a five-count indictment. That includes the felony count of obstruction that so many of these defendants face. Now, 
I'd express the express the prediction, really the, the hope earlier uh, in an earlier episode, that the government would hold the line on these felony charges and not permit felony defendants to plead guilty to misdemeanors. That may be the sticking point for Fracker and uh, Robertson. Uh, so far, only Carl Dresch has uh, been charged with a felony and been allowed to plead to a misdemeanor, although apparently some other folks hadn't actually happened yet are also in similar circumstances. Now, it's significant, you know, again, maybe they're taking a tougher line with these two defendants because they are law enforcement officers um, and also because uh, Robertson made the news this week also because he apparently uh, had bought 37 weapons, 34 weapons, something like that, uh, as a violation of his conditions of release and had them shipped to a gun dealer, which he said, well, that's not the same as possession. Um, that, uh, apparent, that argument did not fly with the judge. And so he is now in pretrial detention. So he's not in a really good position to be turning down offers from the Department of Justice. So we'll wait and see whether or not this defendant, these two defendants who are, are linked, right? So if one of them uh, pleads guilty, uh, you know, it only goes through if they both do. Um, it, it remains to be seen, you know, whether or not they ultimately uh, do have to plead guilty to a felony, as one would hope. I mean, if, if these guys who are charged with the obstruction count, they're law enforcement officers, they know the nature and the wrongfulness of their acts, if they can't get, you know, uh, convinced to plead to uh, the felony account, then they should just start going to trial. And I realize that no one in the process wants to do that because it will take a long time. And they always argue they don't have the resources in our system to actually, you know, uh, take more than 2% of cases to trial as is typical in the federal system. Uh, but perhaps in order to see actual justice done, that is what it's going to require. There have been a number of arrests since last episode, uh, two of which I would like to focus on uh, as being particularly significant. Uh, one, Ronald Maccabee of Unionville, Tennessee, and Logan Barnhart of Lansing, Michigan. Now, they are both included in this overarching assault indictment um, that was listed as one of you know, what I consider to be uh, the worst assaults in episode eight, the worst and uh, that was part of the attack on officers at the Lower West Terrace of the Capitol. And uh, both of these are interesting because the government apparently relied on information from volunteer online activists in identifying both Maccabee and Barnhart. So Maccabee is a former employee of the Williamson County Sheriff's Department, where he worked as a correctional officer uh, in Franklin, Tennessee. And as such, he joins also another list, a list of former and current law enforcement officials uh, who've been charged in the Capitol insurrection. And um, he was also known to the online sedition hunters, these volunteer activists, as uh, hashtag 3% sheriff because he wore a 3%er logo on what was uh, appeared to be a county-issued uh, sheriff's uh, kit. Now, it might be interesting later to do uh, an episode on the Three Percenters, a group that uh, officially, at the national level, disbanded itself um, following the events of, of January 6th uh, sometime 
in February. So, you know, personally, I think that perhaps the government might be interested in uh, labeling this organization as a domestic terror group and uh, at least uh, urging federal law enforcement and other agencies to pursue the possibility that membership or affiliation with it should be grounds for dismissal. Because if you've got people who are organizing uh, criminal conspiracies to overthrow the government of the United States, they probably should not be uh, employed as law enforcement officers. Now, one thing that's rather curious to me that stands out in uh, Maccabee is that uh, according to the Williamson County Sheriff's Department, he quit his position in uh, March of 2021. And part of being a three percenter is that many of them identify very strongly as, you know, people who are for military or uh, law enforcement or current law enforcement. And so that, that doesn't seem like something that he would uh, give up willingly. Indeed, if you look at his employment history, uh, much of it has been uh, in corrections and law enforcement. So um, when he quit that job, he took a job at a Velocity Vehicle Group, uh, which is a, a, a big fleet maintenance uh, outfit, uh, apparently working as something, a vehicle accountant, whatever that is. So that's rather curious, right? Um, all of his previous experience uh, pretty much is in law enforcement and, you know, leaving uh, law enforcement is something I, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, why would you do a voluntary quit if that's, that's, you know, what you are, right? So you're a three percenter and you're, you know, you've got your dream job. Why would you quit it to go work for a fleet maintenance company? Um, my guess is that his involvement in uh, the capital insurrection had become involved, uh, had become, sorry, knowledge to, uh, you know, known to the Williamson County uh, Sheriff's Department. Uh, indeed, the, the charging documents show that uh, a former, uh, someone from the office of one of his former employees, a uh, Ch Cherokee County, Georgia uh, department, um, you know, talked to the FBI. And so, you know, perhaps at some point they had also uh, decided that either the FBI or the Cherokee uh, department, that it might be a good idea uh, to talk to his, his current employer um, and then, you know, maybe Maccabee was allowed to, to do a, a voluntary quit. Um, so, you know, it, this could be an indication of the amount of time that it takes the FBI from getting information to actually pushing, uh, uh, pursuing charges against these defendants. Now, the fact that Maccabee was involved in one of the most brutal officer assaults on January 6th, uh, I, makes it hard for me to imagine that this is something that they were sitting on, mm. right? Uh, indeed, I, I would speculate they were pursuing this case uh, very actively, and it just took them that long uh, to, you know, take, build the case, get the evidence together to offer the indictments uh, to the court. So, you know, six months, basically, right? If we're assuming they had the information uh, as, you know, early as March, or even perhaps as late as March. Uh, they may have known uh, before. And again, that just goes to show that, you know, all these folks who are identified on the FBI page, uh, the Beyond the Lookout photos, you know, they can't take those photos down, uh, even if they've got a, a firm ID, right? That would tip off the defendants uh, before they've even been arrested or charged. And so as a consequence, we don't know how many of the people on the Bolo page are people that are currently being sought 
uh, or haven't been identified. They're all presumably being sought. Um, so, it, you know, it just goes to show how long it's going to take to do this. And I, I realized this when I started the podcast, right? I knew this wasn't going to be like a, a four-week or a six-week project. And my intent is to keep on doing it uh, for as long as it takes. And even once these people are inmates, right? Because they're, we know that they're going to be doing, engaged in shenanigans even once they're in custody. All right. Another arrest that was made this week, uh, in fact, on the very same day as Maccabee, was uh, Logan Barnhart. Again, he was involved in that massive dogpile assault on law enforcement uh, at the Lower West Terrace. Barnhart's an avid bodybuilder uh, from Lansing, Michigan, and was known to online sedition hunters uh, as hashtag cat sweat because he had gear uh, from the, the Caterpillar Tractor Company and uh, was wearing sweats. Um, most notably, he's appeared on uh, many romance novel covers, apparently. Um, so, you know, he was identified using uh, facial recognition technology. Now, that's, you know, if you're someone who has your image plastered on, in so many places uh, so publicly, uh, perhaps committing federal felonies in daylight in Washington, D.C., in the age, of, the digital age, uh, isn't such a great choice, right? And let me just throw in a, a third case, which was uh, not a new arrest, uh, but the case of Robert Reeder, who faced those same four misdemeanor counts uh, that many of the defendants uh, have been facing. Um, there, had, there was some idea that perhaps Reeder had engaged in assault against uh, officers on that uh, on January 6th, and yet he was faced with misdemeanor charges. And so um, just hours before his hearing, uh, online volunteer sleuths, managed to find digital evidence showing Reader uh, appearing to assault officers. So right, you know, right before the, the, the hearing and um, the government decided that they had new evidence and they asked for more time and were granted more time by the court to amend those charges. So for these reasons, these three cases, um, you know, and by the way, that's unusual, but not, not unheard of. Uh, anyone who's been around, uh, you know, the federal judiciary, uh, federal criminal cases, indictments do, in fact, uh, get uh, modified. Charges can, in fact, be added. So now all these cases, um, you know, have attracted interest precisely because of the role of volunteer activists in identifying them. And, you know, obviously, to, to my mind, these people are heroes with or without capes. And it's great that the, the media are recognizing them for the work they've been doing since January. Um, although, of course, this isn't the first time, right? Uh, there was an NPR story about five minutes long. There have been um, any number of cases talking about sedition hunters and other online uh, groups of people who are working to apprehend uh, the January 6th defendants, the people who appear on the FBI Bolo page. Um, about, to my mind, it raises a lot of questions, though, still about how it's being handled in the media. Uh, there are any number of commentators, especially, you know, sort of on the, the right wing and in the lunatic fringe, uh, who are claiming that the FBI shouldn't be crowdsourcing um, this kind of information. 
um, that, you know, is a multi-billion dollar agency and why do they have to rely on volunteer information? Now, this is just profoundly ahistorical. Um, ever since J. Edgar Hoover accidentally created the first top 10 most wanted list in 1949, the reality is that, um, you know, they've been, the FBI has been using uh, public information. And of course, you know, again, the fact that they didn't have the word crowdsourcing, but that's what wanted posters are. And so, um, I mean, that's a bit of an interesting story in and of itself, uh, right? Uh, Hoover in 49 gave an interview to a journalist and the journalist asked him, who are the most wanted people who are, who, what people are the, is the Bureau most actively pursuing? And um, he gave them a list of 10 names and that carried with it, uh, the, the journalist put the, you know, the top 10 list uh, label on it. And uh, the FBI generated a number of useful tips from that. And Hoover decided to make that a, a regular feature. But we don't know, you know, that story could be apocryphal. It could be that uh, Hoover uh, aimed to do it. But that's uh, that's how the issue of the FBI top 10 list uh, has always been covered. Um, but the idea that, that law enforcement accepting this kind of volunteer information from the public is new and therefore wrong is somehow absurd. Uh, you know, it's just, this is something that's gone on for centuries. King James I of England circulated broadsheets that offered descriptions of wanted criminals in an effort to, you know, essentially crowdsource fugitive apprehension. So relying on information from the public isn't new. It's as old as organized law enforcement. Um, the thing that, you know, I, I expect most from... Uh, supporters of insurrection is whining about it. Uh, we've already seen uh, defendants question the motives of the people who are providing evidence to the government against them. And this is another great example of what people comically refer to as the Chewbacca defense from South Park. It's just an attempt to distract and redirect, right? Don't look at me and the terrible things that I've done. Look over here. Well, it's Antifa and BLM yet again. Um, and so the defendants are trying to draw attention away from them and their crimes, um, in part because they have no real legal defense at this point, right? Uh, so if you don't have a, an actual legal defense when you're faced with this volume of digital evidence, um, you know, they have nothing left but to cast aspersions on the motivations of members of the public uh, who are attempting to identify in insurrectionists and, uh, indeed, in the reader case, you know, provide other evidence that, um, you know, may in fact uh, wind up with them being facing uh, more serious charges. And so this is rather comical. The, the very same people who were bashing police with thin blue line flags are now claiming that it's wrong for members of the public to help law enforcement. And I just don't think that this is going to be a very successful tactic in the court of public opinion. Um, and the case law itself is, is quite solid. So uh, Navarretto v. California in 2014, Clarice Thomas, writing for the majority, found that an anonymous tip could provide the basis for a reasonable cause in traffic stops. And these cases aren't even close to traffic stops uh, in the circumstances of a traffic stop in that they're not nearly as invasive. All the tipsters are doing is providing evidence to the identity of persons who are already wanted on an anonymous basis. So, um, you know, 
And then what the, the law enforcement, what the FBI does is far less intrusive than a traffic stop. They verify the information. Is this uh, the person who's actually identified? They, they go to their home. They schedule interviews. Um, this isn't you know, as intrusive as a traffic stop. And um, they take steps to uh, verify the identity uh, and the veracity of the information that's included. So despite the whining, no one's alleging that um, they got the wrong guy, right? No one is alleging that any of these anonymous tips have resulted in cases of mistaken identity uh, that wind up uh, involving uh, charges that are filed erroneously. Indeed, you know, the, the closest case, uh, Chris Kelly, it's the only case where charges were dropped. The FBI, uh, you know, the Department of Justice, the AUSAs, decided not to pursue it uh, because it didn't appear that the subject actually, uh, Chris Kelly, went into the Capitol. So the video evidence itself is, is deemed to be reliable. And all the, the public source, the open source people are doing is, um, you know, using that. Now, the complaints about these tipsters using open source methods to uh, aid law enforcement, you know, fly in the face of what law enforcement has been trying to do legally for, for decades, because they actually, have, in many cases, tried to argue that the public has an, a duty, a positive duty to assist law enforcement. So, you know, it's absurd to say that, you know, when law enforcement has for decades tried to assert this, then reject it on, you know, the basis of requesting these people's motivations. Indeed, to my mind, these kinds of complaints about anonymous tipsters, sedition hunters, volunteer activists, whatever you want to call them, are every bit as disingenuous as the complaints regarding the conditions of confinement at the D.C. jail. It is what it is. Law enforcement has been working with anonymous tipsters and volunteers for decades. They've been actively seeking it out. That's what beyond the lookout photographs are. And suddenly you have a problem with it. It's not because you don't support the mission of law enforcement. It's because you support the people, the traitors, who are being found out by people who are patriotic Americans who don't support treason and who don't support sedition. All right. Uh, speaking of treason, sedition, and domestic terrorism, on August 13th, the Department of Homeland Security issued a National Terrorism Advisory System memo uh, as part of as, as a reaction to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, right? So many times there are these, you know, these anniversaries and people anticipate that there are going to be uh, terrorist attacks. And so 20 years, a big round number, and DHS came up with a memo uh, in order to alert their partner agencies. What's really remarkable here is how little of this memo is actually dedicated to international terrorism and how much is dedicated to domestic terror, uh, particularly the domestic terror threat that's caused by people that DHS calls, quote, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, RMVESs. Which, by the way, come up with something that's a better acronym. You're in the government. The government is great at coming up with acronyms. Um, this is really just not good. And anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremists. And, you know, um, again, yeah, they probably include uh, or would love to include uh, anarchists in this. But reality, most of the anti-government extremists are people like the Bundys. Uh, people, you know... It used to be people like the Weathermen a long time ago, 
uh, but now it's people like the militia movement, um, and you know one could say these these so-called America First Trumpist insurrectionists. The DHSH memo specifically raises concerns that COVID restrictions and precautions might be used as a rationale for politically motivated violence. Here's one passage that I found noteworthy. Quote, Law enforcement has expressed concerns that the broader sharing of false narratives and conspiracy theories will gain traction in mainstream environments, resulting in individuals or small groups embracing violent terror tactics to achieve their desired objectives with a diverse array of threats. DHS is concerned that increased outbreaks of violence in some locations, as well as attacks against law enforcement, may strain local resources. End quote. All right. You think? Right? I mean, it's a little late. It's, it's appalling how late it is that uh, DHS appears to be taking notice only just now. Um, prior to January 6th, I mean, just off the top of my head, uh, Charlottesville, you know, the MAGA bomber, the Nashville bomber, the Las Vegas shootings, uh, you know, the motives for which, you know, hey, we don't really know, but right, both Nashville and Las Vegas, uh, those guys totally fit the profile, even if they didn't leave a convenient little manifesto. Um, the Boogaloo attack in California. Uh, one might have thought that DHS would have taken some notice of these kinds of attacks. Um, I guess it's better late than never. But, you know, I can understand why a Trump Justice Department might not be interested in preparing for attacks that are perpetrated by the people that he calls good people, after all. Uh, but the vast majority of the national security apparatus isn't comprised of political or presidential appointees. It's comprised of career people. Uh, not appointees, but rather career people who are supposed to be professional and objective and interested in uh, protecting the public. So, um, you know, better late than never, I guess. Uh, DHS also expressed concern that, quote, Violent extremists may use particular messaging platforms or techniques to obscure operational indicators that provide specific warning of a pending act of violence. And, you know, again, they're they're talking about things like Telegram, things like encrypted messaging. Um, but, you know, that's that's really, I don't know, kind of absurd in the face of the fact that uh, as we've seen many times, right, go through Shane Leiden Jenkins' Twitter feed, see the places uh, that he visits on, on the web, wildprotest.com, you know, all the, the information that was put out, out there by Charlie Kirk, uh, all the stuff that was put out there by Ali Alexander and Stop the Steal, all the stuff that was put out there by the Women for America First group, right? The organizers of the event are known. And it, it takes a, you know, a huge leap to, to say that they weren't in on the idea that uh, there was going to be violence. Everyone who was observing, apparently, except for the Capitol Police, the D.C. Metropolitan Police, Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the Secret Service, except for those people who get billions of dollars a year, everybody else knew, right? And that, you know, there's a reason why Antifa and BLM didn't show up, Right. So, you know, they wanted them to, they desperately wanted them to, but, you know, they, they chose not to fall into that trap. Um, so, anyway, you know, 
maybe yes look at these encrypted messaging platforms but it appears that you guys you know the dhs isn't really doing a great job when it comes to open source material uh people in the media you can look back there are articles talking about a coup immediately after the election you indeed before the election in 2020. um dhs in the same memo also makes the claim that they will Quote, identify and evaluate calls for violence, including online activity associated with the spread of disinformation, conspiracy theories, and false narratives by known or suspected threat actors. Okay, well, good, good, you know, um, hopefully they, they now know who these known and suspected threat actors are, right? Uh, quite frankly, a lot of it is, you know, white males from 18 to 75, uh, particularly from certain states. So um, for me, the good news is they did a terrible job on January 6th, so there's really nowhere to go but up. And the government is very good at fighting the last war, right? One guy tries to make a shoe bomb, we're taking our shoes off uh, for decades thereafter. So just as we saw a crackdown on the militia movement in the wake of the Murrah building bombing, um, one might expect that the DHS will actually start to get proactive in working with other agencies to deal with the actual threat of extremist right-wing violence in America. Speaking of the threat of right-wing domestic violence in America, uh, domestic violence, well, domestic violence, uh, domestic terrorism, although as we've learned, these two things tend to go hand in hand, um, we have the case of Floyd Ray Rosenberry of Grover, North Carolina. I originally recorded this yesterday, um, and as I was doing it, the events uh, were unfolding in D.C. at the Library of Congress uh, with Mr. Rosenberry. Um, and, you know, he fits the profile, right? And so, in fact, uh, there's something like a 33-minute a video clip available of him uh, ranting uh, about his motivations. Uh, and he references the South any number of times, right? He says, Southern boys are here. I got five other people, you know, something like that. Anyway, uh, from my home state of North Carolina, this Rosenberry character, uh, middle-aged white man with a goatee, uh, parked his black pickup truck on the sidewalk outside the Library of Congress in D.C., and Capitol Police and other agencies responded. Um, it ends, of course, you know, the, the way it ended in 1865, well, with Rosenberry face on, down on the ground, uh, you know, prostate, prostrate, <laughs> prostrate uh, excuse me, uh, giving up his unconditional surrender. Um, you know, he, he made any a number of absurd claims. He seemed to misunderstand the way healthcare in America works. Uh, claiming that, you know, illegal immigrants or undocumented people get free health care, uh, but yet somehow he's having a problem paying that when, in fact, it is the Republicans in the North Carolina General Assembly who have blocked Obamacare funding for people like Mr. Rosenberry, uh, you know, from getting access to health care. So, um, we'll see. I mean, uh, Ultimately, uh, his bomb making was so inept that they decided that what he had wasn't really a bomb, just bomb making materials. Um, I mean, to my mind, though, he had something wired together with something else. 
so, you know, uh, does, I don't think they should really, you know, hold the proficiency or lack thereof of uh, Mr. Rosenberry at bomb making against him, right? Uh, we have prosecuted any number of people uh, who have had devices that have failed off uh, because they were poorly engineered, um, you know. But yeah, Grover, North Carolina, of course, uh, was actually the site of the, um, well, the county where it was, uh, the first meeting of seditionists, insurrectionists, uh, traitors, Confederates, people who ultimately would become Confederates uh, in the state of North Carolina following the election of 1860. So there's some history. Uh, so let's, you know, follow the process uh, all the way through. And I would be remiss if I didn't talk a, at least a little bit about the enormous shit show that was Mike Lindell's Cyber Symposium um, you know, or the, the Treason Telethon or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Lindell, a uh, crack cocaine addict um, who, you know, claims he is no longer using, nonetheless displayed erratic behavior throughout his three-day telethon uh, where he claimed that he had 37 billion million gajillion terabytes of data proving that there was uh, fraud in the 2020 presidential election. Um, and so he hired a, a hired gun, his own cyber ninja, one Josh Merritt, uh, who was supposed to analyze the data. And um, Merritt said, no, this there's, there's no fraud here. You've handed me a turd. This isn't nothing. This isn't a real thing. Every independent person who's reviewed it said, no, this isn't anything. This isn't a real thing. Um, and Merritt actually winds up having a, a bit of a public feud with Lindell, where, you know, it basically shows that Lindell uh, asked him to show something. Um, and Merritt actually, to his credit, um, you know, took the money and then said, no, this is this is garbage. But thanks anyway. Um, in an effort to, you know, perhaps shore up his narrative. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but, you know, way back during the Obama administration, it might have even been in the 2008 campaign, there was this girl... She claimed that she was assaulted and she scratched a B onto her face, but it was backwards. So she had a backward B on her face and something similar. Lindell claimed that, of course, Antifa uh, attacked him in the parking structure uh, one night following the, the, the cyber telethon. Um, you know, things that didn't happen. Right. So. Uh, yet another deadline has come and gone. August 13th was supposed to be the date of the reinstatement of Donald J. Trump. That's been, been moved back. Um, and so, you know, I think we can be done with this process. Anytime anybody mentions this, you can say, sorry, you missed the deadline. It was January 6th. It was March 24th. It was August 13th. At what point do these people say uh, that they, they have a God that failed? Um, so, you know, possibly never. But you can at least uh, confront them and they can have some cognitive dissonance on, on that. So finally, what I'd like to do is to offer a little bit of political science or rather political philosophy context to help understand what's happening uh, in the sphere of American politics. Uh, what the, the zeitgeist is, the spirit of the age, uh, if you are the sort of person who believes in that kind of a Hegelian theory of that, you know, we have ages and that they have spirits. Um, 
And I'm going to turn to the theory of the circulation of elites by Vilfredo Pareto, uh, who is, uh, well, had a French mother and an Italian father, uh, was bilingual. Um, uh, his dates are 1848 to 1923. And it's important to recognize that he is one of the first uh Political science, well, I mean, you, you, he fits in so many categories. He's trained as an engineer. Uh, he does work that really touches on economics. Uh, primarily, many of his ideas wind up uh, becoming part of the basis of 20th century economics. Um, but also, uh, he works in political theory, uh, sociology, um, philosophy more broadly. Uh, he's, his contributions wind up being enormously influential in a number of of different areas. And it's important to recognize also that he's profoundly reactionary. His theories of the state uh, and of human nature are, generally speaking, reactionary. And a little bit, uh, you'll, you'll learn a little bit more. Uh, in fact, when Mussolini is rising to power, uh, Pareto, I believe writing from Switzerland nonetheless, uh, does wind up supporting. So he supports actual fascism just in the historical moment at the end of his life when it's coming to power. So everything else, take that with a, a grain of salt. Doesn't ever seem to bother the economists, by the way, uh, that part of it. But uh, the work I'm going to be referencing is his 1916 work, uh, which has generally been published under the name in English, Mind and Society. Although I don't, I don't speak Italian, but if you look at the Italian uh, title, it actually translates uh, better as uh, a theory of general sociology. So he was aimed at a sociological theory, even though broadly speaking, what you could say that what he was really doing is more in the area of what political scientists would call political philosophy or political theory. So Pareto comes up with something he calls a theory of, well, what we call a theory of circulation of elites. And again, this is more of a political theory model of understanding the world uh, rather than an empirical political science model of understanding the world. So ideas of more than data. Now, Pareto uh, comes up with the idea that elites are always dominant. There's always going to be a limited number of people who are in charge. So there are masses and there are elites. And we call uh, him, we see him as one of the founders of classical elite theory, uh, which is usually reactionary. Later, um, there's a, a more modern development of elite theory, uh, such as you know, famously the book, The Power Elite, uh, which is, uh, you know, sort of uh, strips elite theory of his, uh, you know, sort of reactionary underpinnings. Um, nonetheless, this is, you know, foundational to classical elite theory, the idea that elites always uh, are ruling. And um, this profoundly influences political science in, in terms of how we use the term elite. Now, I realize that elite in a popular nomenclature has become a pejorative term. Um, but this is uh, a value-neutral social scientific term uh, in some sense. When political scientists use the term elites, we are usually referring to elected officials uh, as uh, political elites. So um, his theory is more general than that, uh, as you might imagine from the, the idea that it's a theory of general sociology. Uh, he's looking for an identifiable elite, really, in, in every realm of human life. Um, but when he talks about elites as a kind of a class, he develops a, a uh, binary typology. Uh, there are two basic kinds of elites, and they're uh, 
in doing this, he borrows from Machiavelli, Niccolo Machiavelli, uh, another Italian, of course, who uh, wrote probably the uh, most famous failed cover letter of all time, uh, The Prince, which was, a, a, in essence, a job application that he was writing to the, the Medicis in his effort to uh, get reinstalled uh, in his former kind of position uh, as an advisor and a diplomat. Um, a, you know, a political fixer, if you will. Uh, and so he would go up in his room late at night, start burning candles, put on his fine robes, and uh, write what would become some of the most influential political theory uh, in, in modernity. Indeed, to many people, he is the defining political philosopher of uh, the modern tradition, uh, or at least the first one. And Machiavelli comes up, uh, recommends to his prince that uh, there are uh, two basic types of leaders, and um, there are lions and there are foxes. Lions rely on strength. The lion uses a force to overawe his subjects, much in the way that Hobbes' Leviathan uh, does. And foxes rely on cunning, right? They fool and dupe the masses into uh, following him, right? Um, and Machiavelli urges the prince, uh, really, he's talking to the Medicis here, uh, Lorenzo in particular, that, you know, sometimes you should be like the lion, and sometimes you should be like the fox. Sometimes you should use force, sometimes you should be use fraud. A really good prince knows that there is a place for both. Pareto takes this idea and uh, changes it from, instead of a kind of a tactic, where sometimes you're going to use force, sometimes you're going to use fraud, uh, turns it into a, a basic typology of different kinds of elites. So some rulers always and in all places, uh, are, are lions. They're lions. They rule through strength. They rule through coercion. Some rulers, like contrast, are foxes. They rule by guile. They rule by cleverness. They rule by words. They rule by laws and cunning. So, um, you know, and, and for him, right, this isn't, you know, tactical advice. This is something essential. There are essentially two different kinds of leaders, and the story of human history for Pareto is the circulation of elites, the circulation between alternations in power between these two fundamental kinds of elites. And, it's it, you know, for him, um, these foxes were identified with democracy, that the democratic politicians fool the masses into following them, and in some sense he preferred the lions uh, who rule through strength and in some sense are, are, are more honest, right? So it's not a surprise that he ultimately winds up supporting the rise of power uh, of Mussolini and his fascist movement. So I'm not sure it's a happy accident, uh, you know, that the America First movement has chosen the lion as its symbol. Uh, you know, certainly some of them do pretend or have intellectual pretenses, um, and, you know, they, they may consciously uh, be aping what you know, Pareto has to say with regard to the lions and the foxes. So here, obviously, Trump would be the lion, right? And the existing Republican elites would be foxes. Now, I'm not the only person who's noticed this, right? Anyone who has basic familiarity with classical elite theory and American electoral politics sees that immediate connection, right? Not just a symbolic connection, but also, uh, you know, just in terms of what Trump himself, you know, is trying to do. Uh, this is a, an authoritarian arg argument. 
Um, if you think that the country has been taken over by these clever foxes and you would prefer the rule of the, the strong authoritarian lion who agrees with you, uh, you know, this is an, uh, essentially an, an anti-democratic argument, right? You don't, you know, you don't need to worry about the masses in a sense. If uh, at the end of the day, instead of bothering to persuade them as the foxes would, uh, you can simply overawe them with strength and with force. And arguably, we saw that on January 6th. And we even saw that uh, yesterday with Rosenberry's uh, little, you know, attempted uh, coup, the foundations of the revolution that uh, he claimed that he was building. Now, it's not my intent to do an entire ap episode on classical elite theory or to assess it, but I, I think it does describe what Trumps are doing, which is the wholesale replacement of the elite Republicans, right? The uh, currently in power Republican political elite with a new one. And we've seen this in, to different extents at different points in our party system. So one example would be the class of 1974 in the Democratic Party, uh, which is a subject of an excellent book in 2018 by John Lawrence. Uh, just to refresh you, uh, 1974, Watergate is ongoing. There's an enormous scandal. There are concerns about the Vietnam War um, and the uh, current regime in Washington under Richard Nixon is seen as uh, extremely corrupt. And um, the Democrats win hugely in a, the... My, the midterm election of 1974, particularly in the House, where 74 new Democratic representatives are elected to the House. And um, you can call them the class of 74. At the time, many times they were called Watergate babies. So they were younger, they were more progressive, and they uh, you know, had more favorable views on civil rights than the current Democratic elite elected in Congress, many of whom uh, were Southern red dog Democrats um, who were not progressive on uh, civil rights in particularly in particular or uh, women's issues or, you know, indeed uh, many things, um, sometimes vaguely populist, uh, sometimes supportive of the New Deal, uh, but in, in other ways, you know, largely holding stances that, that today would, would uh, belong to the Republican Party. So we see this, um, you know, this group, 1974, profoundly changed the, the Democratic Party. And indeed, you, you might argue that uh, the defection of uh, Southern whites, uh, both at the party and the electorate level and at the elite level, uh, is in fact partly a consequence of this new class of more progressive, more liberal Democrats gaining power in Washington, D.C. And this huge generational cohort winds up uh, exercising the, the reins of power. And in fact, uh, you know, even though many of them are retired, some of them are still there, right? So quite advanced age now, but uh, you could, for example, include Joe Biden in that group, even though um, he was in the House, in the Senate, not the House, and he was elected to the Senate in 72. Very much, you know, even though he himself is more conservative than most of them. He liked to paint himself, uh, particularly with regard to civil rights, uh, as, as being progressive. Um, his, his strange little stories about corn pop uh, notwithstanding. So um, that's one example, right, of a wholesale replacement of, uh, you know, elites 
uh, through both primaries and also just through picking up seats in the general election, you have this identifiable wave of uh, newer, you know, progressive elites uh, replacing uh, an older elite. And in this instance, it might be a case of the, the foxes replacing the lions, if I'm going to push the Parietan metaphor uh, a bit further. Another example is the Tea Party wave in 2010, uh, which I interpret as a engineered astroturf political movement that relied on funding uh, from organizations such as Freedom Works and Americans Front for Prosperity, that's the Koch brothers, and Tea Party Express. Um, so at the end of 2008 election, Republicans realized they were enormously unpopular. Uh, you had the Santelli rant on uh, television. Um, and so they engineered this movement uh, to benefit, in some sense, from uh, racist reactions to the election of the uh, first black president, um, but also to reorganize themselves electorally in a very clever scheme that would help, uh, you know, not only gain control of Congress, but also state legislatures across the country, thereby ensuring that they would be in charge for de redistricting and being able to uh, favorably gerrymander states as a consequence of the 2010 census and thereby uh, institutionally rig the levers of power uh, in, in a way that, you know, resounds unto this day, right? Um, they're still very much, uh, you know, overrepresented electorally as a consequence of the gerrymandering that took place uh, in 2010. Um, some of which, I mean, my home state, right, you know, the, the districts were actually thrown out, including my home district, uh, by the uh, Supreme Court, which is, you know, rather extraordinary. Um, so they, as a tactic, relied on rallies. And what was interesting to me at the time is that if you look at where the rallies were held, they weren't held where the Tea Party itself was most popular. Uh, that would have been in the southern states. Um, you know, if you just looked at poll results, you would think they would be holding them in uh, South Carolina and Mississippi and Alabama. But no. Um, in fact, most of the largest rallies that were well-funded, well-supported by organizations such as Freedom Works were held in swing states. Wisconsin, Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, and Michigan in particular. And the Tea Party movement enabled the Republicans to pick up big wins. But this was organized. This was centralized. This was well-administered. Um, the political elites in Washington effectively rebranded the Republican Party as the Tea Party for one election cycle. They carefully targeted districts that were winnable and poured millions and millions of dollars into this election, uh, knowing that Democrats tend not to vote in midterm elections and they thought they elected Barack Obama and everything was fine um, but they to completely ginned up support uh, you know through this Tea Party movement to create an enthusiasm gap that caused uh, a takeover of many governorships many state legislatures um, and both houses of Congress so enormously consequential um, but that was the short-term goal of the Republican Party now, part of what happened, though, was, again, kind of like we saw in 74, the creation of this cohort of elected Republican elites who come in on the Tea Party wave. And so even though the Tea Party label itself um, exists, you know, uh, as a label, basically, 
Uh, one might argue that Trump himself inherits the political movement and the energy uh, that was generated by the Tea Party. So, too, it creates this, this brand of, of newer, more conservative, um, but also more populist Republican elected officials. And uh, many of them wind up, you know, basically labels have changed, right? So uh, they're, they're, it's not the Tea Parties, per se, uh, so much as it is the Freedom Caucus. Um, or now, the new label, America First, right? So these are America First Republicans. And um, it's kind of interesting. Tea Party starts as a way to get new elites into the system uh, for the temporary cause of advancing the Republican agenda. Um, they rebrand the, the, the Republican Party as the Tea Party. When it no longer serves them, they ditch the Tea Party label. And yet many of these Tea Party figures, um, who in some sense are probably less qualified to hold public office uh, than any other wave uh, before them, nonetheless uh, are still with us. And um, then they all support Trump. And then uh, they rebrand themselves now uh, as America First Republicans. So there's a rebrand and then a rebrand and then another rebrand. Um, and another key difference, I think, between the Tea Party wave and uh, the Trumpist wave, the, the America First wave that we're currently seeing, this effort to replace Republican elected officials, uh, or indeed or replace Democrats with Republican elected officials as well, uh, is that it's more openly authoritarian. Now, this is a bit of a political problem for them because on the one hand, they're saying that uh, one of the most important features of the American political system is that elections are rife with fraud. Uh, I don't know how you come up with a viable electoral movement out of that. Um, but, you know, whereas the Tea Party itself was populist and, uh, you know, majoritarian, broadly speaking, uh, whereas um, this movement is based on the idea that elections are fraudulent and minorities should rule anyway, particularly when those minorities uh, are uh, white and conservative. And uh, the part that goes unspoken is it's also generational, uh, is older. And so they're coming up with um, these proposals. If, they, if this brand of Republican wins, we're going to see proposals such as what we're seeing now in Georgia, where they're seeking to give the state legislature the authority to take control of local election boards and also to overturn election results that the state legislators themselves don't like. So, bringing us full circle to the current moment. Um, there's an identifiable list, and I, I want to thank the, the folks who, who helped identify these folks online, on Twitter, uh, you, you know who you are. Um, but there's... There were a number of Republican electeds, and I talked about this in my episode on um, the, the grand old party animals, um, but there were a number of people who are currently running for office, not former office holders or current office holders, uh, who also spoke particularly at the event on January 5th, uh, but who were very public uh, at January 6th. And uh, the label to look out for moving forward uh, for this Trumpist movement uh, are America First, right? So anytime they identify themselves as an America First Republican or America First Conservative, that means Trumpist. That means seditionist. That means uh, traitors. So um, there's a historical antecedent to, to all this um, that 
you know, bear, one might bear in mind, right? So, I mean, there, there are all these historical parallels, rather, that you can draw uh, between now and Weimar Germany. I know it's been overblown. Uh, nonetheless, you know, to my mind, um, there are lots of comparisons to be made, uh, particularly with the Beer Hall Pooch, right? So there's an unsuccessful Pooch. There's an attempt by um, Hitler and other members of the NSADP, uh, the National Socialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartei Deutschlands, um, and to try to take over the, the, the state of Bavaria in Munich in 1923. It fails. Uh, Hitler's let out with a slap on the wrist. Uh, they, they decide that he's recovered and reformed. They, they let him out in a few months. During that time, he writes Mein Kampf. And the, the people who uh, were fighting with him, alongside him, at the Beer Hall Pooch, in his effort to take over Bavaria, um, wind up ultimately becoming high-ranking officials, many of them, in, in the Nazi party itself. Uh, these are uh, his, his troops, basically. These are his people. Uh, people from the earliest days, other people with low Nazi party numbers uh, who wind up becoming prominent national socialists uh, after the Nazi rise to power following the Reichstag fire uh, in 1923. So, not, sorry, 1933. So we've had our beer hall putsch. Ten years later, there's the Reichstag fire. Um, and that, that, that goes to show we're still early days in all of this. Um, so... I'm going to go down the list. I was hoping to actually look at the publicly available uh, election data with regard to the fundraising, but unfortunately, that's not out yet. Uh, the deadlines haven't passed. We're still early in the cycle. Uh, these are folks who are running for election in 2022, for the most part, and as a consequence, there's not publicly available election data, but I will be tracking that uh, when it comes out, because I, I'm curious to see the uh, commonalities uh, between the donors for these America First uh, Trumpist Republicans. So here, here are some of the people that we know were at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, Tina Forte, who's uh, running for the U.S. House. Um, there's Rachel Hamm, of Cal who's running for the Secretary of State in California. Now, there's one to watch, right? Uh, you know, probably not going to win that. Republicans don't do terribly well statewide in California. Um, nonetheless, uh, Secretaries of State are in charge of elections apparatus, right? So you can expect, uh, particularly all across the country, uh, they're going to definitely run America First candidates for Secretary of State all across the country. J.R. Majewski of Ohio, uh, Joey Gilbert, uh, who's running for governor in Nevada. Um, Jeremy Liggett, who's particularly interesting in that he is a known three percenter, uh, and he's running for the U.S. House uh, in Florida. And he is one of the people who spoke at the event on January 5th uh, with Alex Jones and was wearing a fuck Antifa sh uh, sweatshirt. Audra Johnson of Michigan, who's running for the U.S. House from the 3rd District. Uh, Leanne Bilizjewski, who's running uh, for the Howell City, Michigan City Council. Sorry, Howell, Michigan City Council. And she's actually had an election uh, for the cycle. Um, this is an election that's going to occur this year. She won the primary. It's a nonpartisan jungle primary. Uh, there's all kinds of different formats from a, a jungle primary, but basically uh, a jungle primary is a primary where we have more than two people advance to the next round. In this case, it's a top six primary. Um, so she has advanced to the next level and will uh, possibly get elected to the Howell City Council in Michigan in November. 
Ryan Kelly of Michigan, who is running for governor, whole contingent from Michigan, actually. Uh, Jason Howland, who's running for the Michigan State House from District 31. Um, Angela Regas, who is running for the Michigan State House, uh, who's apparently a hairdresser who was charged in a protest at the state capitol in Lansing on May 20th uh, in something called Operation Haircut, where she and other uh, barbers and hairstylists were giving haircuts in violation of the state's uh, COVID rules. So John Rocha, also of Michigan, who's running for the uh, 6th U.S. House District of Michigan. Uh, Erica Benfeld of Florida, who's running for House from Florida's 7th District. And Anthony Aguero, who is uh, running for the House in Texas from District 16. Now, polemically, I think one of the key questions to ask of these candidates, these America First candidates, uh, as the electoral process goes forward, is if they lose the election, will they concede? Trump didn't, right? And so you're participating in, in um, politics in bad faith and electoral politics if you will not come out and concede. Concession is an important norm in democratic electoral politics. And so, uh, you know, that would be something that, you know, it would be great to see, right? Because you, you've got this claim that elections are fraudulent. Okay, well, will you concede if you lose the election? Why are you running if you believe elections are fraudulent? Are you yourself going to participate in fraud? Fraud. These are you know the kinds of questions that these people uh, should be held to account to. Uh, do they still believe the big lie? Uh, spoiler alert. Yeah, they they all do. Um, so again, public information not available yet, but we do know that uh, there are a number of Trump affiliated groups. Uh, he has a 501c3, the American First Policy Institute, uh, not supposedly allowed to uh, you know, participate directly in electoral politics. Um, there's the Save America Leadership PAC, uh, which is a leadership PAC, that is to say an elite PAC, uh, elected, affiliated with Trump. Um, there's the Make America Great Again Action uh, Fund, which is uh, affiliated with Trump, and the America First Action uh, group, which is, again, a, another um, pack that is, all in all, all these groups together, um, or at least the ones that are allowed to contribute can substantially to campaigns, have an estimated war chest of $102 million. So since the November election and today, Trump has been able to raise $102 million. And this money will be used as a war chest for his project of elite replacement of putting his people, these Trumpist, treasonous, insurrectionist, seditionist Republicans, into office in order to build, uh, you know, a power network across the country. And I would particularly be alarmed at state legislatures, and I would be particularly alarmed at the fact that this is a midterm election, and uh, Democrats have this historical trend of saying, whoa, we won the White House, yay, we don't need to bother voting in the midterms. And that is one that's uh, not just concern, concerning on policy grounds. This time, it's concerning on the grounds of the survival of electoral democracy in our republic. So elections will not be meaningful if you have state legislators voting to give them the power to seize control of local election boards and to overturn the results of democratic elections. And also... Um, 
we if you have secretaries of state at the state level we've already seen uh, any number of times we saw it in florida in 2000 uh we saw it in 2016 we saw it in 2020 where you know if you're the secretary of state you can engage in any number of shenanigans right uh brad raffensperger you know deserves props for you know ultimately siding with electoral democracy even though he had done any number of shenanigans uh all along to support republicans in georgia so that's it for this week again circulation of elites the trumps are you know trumpist movement the insurrectionists are attempting to create uh the mass replacement a wave replacement of republican elected officials uh you know well of elected officials in general right an electoral movement that is going to be based at seizing power and ending democracy arguably national so um again this goes against the constitutional guarantee that we have that each state will maintain a republican form of government so that's why this is extremely concerning because these are folks who want to win an election so it can be the last election so that from now on, state legislatures can install the presidents that they want at will in defiance of the majority will of the people. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend.